not to say that comedians can't be vulnerable. I think they can be. But I do notice that the, the great ones are vulnerable. I can do everything I want to do and I don't have to like leave anything unsaid. <laughs> there's beauty in the attempt <laughs> like i don't know there's something like like even when art is bad it's good hello and welcome to the theater art life podcast sponsored by clearcom the leader in voice communications for theater and the performing arts call your cues with the simplicity and elegance of clearcom intercom solutions the Theatre Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Kat Landry. Today we are talking to Nathaniel Philip Mosher. Nathaniel is a comedian, poet, and singer-songwriter. As a poet, Nathan's poetry began at age seven when he was chosen out of his third grade class to read a poem about the school janitor who was leaving after 20 years of service. The poem read, you help us not slip, you help us not trip, and so on. Thus, his penchant for rhyming and rhythm was born. At age 10, he was chosen by his fifth grade teacher to enter the Young Storytellers program where his play about a man becoming king of the Martians was acted by Phil of the Future star Ricky Ullman. He continued to write poetry, entering in local workshops such as the historic Beyond Baroque Poetry Theater in Venice, California, and eventually the California State Summer School for the Arts at Cal Arts where he earned notable distinction of becoming a California art scholar. At the California State Summer School for the Arts, which features notable alums such as James Franco, Zac Efron, and Catherine McPhee, he learned his passion for sharing personal stories. At age 16, he began writing jokes, took to the stage, and began honing his craft at the age of 17 before he was even allowed into comedy clubs. While attending UCLA, he took advantage of the burgeoning comedy scene, running shows in lecture halls, theaters, coffee shops, classrooms, and even parking lots, while continuing to perform nightly in the larger L.A. area. While at college, Nathan also performed around town, even getting a fake ID to perform at bars and comedy clubs. His voracious DIY work ethic compelled him to organize a variety of -of out-of-town tours, bringing his trademark informal yet spellbinding words to stages in London, New York, Boston, D.C., San Francisco, and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as a semi-finalist in New York's NBC Stand Up for Diversity Showcase. Moshe's inherent ability to hustle while fostering his craft has elevated him to more recently work with respected acts like Maria Bamford, Ali Wong, and Joe Coy. During his senior year, he proudly signed to the prestigious management company Three Arts Entertainment, which works alongside notable clients Kevin Hart, Aziz Ansari, and Amy Poehler. Nathaniel, welcome to the show. Yeah. Hello. (laughs) Oh, man. It's interesting hearing my bio read to me. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. But I was like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) So, Nathaniel, um, you have just finished a show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival uh, called Nathan Mosher is Injured. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I wrote a one man show. I've always been. I've always wanted to, since I started stand-up, to write an autobiographical one-man show. Ever since I saw Dimitri Martin's one-man show, uh, If I, which he did at the Edinburgh Fringe, and through Wikipedia, that's how I found out about it. And uh, yeah, after, uh, I guess, t- t- they say it takes 10 years to uh, write an hour as, as a comedian, and uh, that's exactly how long it took. 
and it also took took a whole lot of uh, tragedy and uh, turmoil and suffering to get the story. But uh, I'm definitely grateful for all the lessons I've learned um, and and uh, the show I got, um, which doing the Edinburgh Fringe finally, I would say I, by the end of the the run, I finally got the show to where I wanted it to, despite how ridiculously hard it was to get people there. Lots of people, lots of shows were canceled even in my venue because people weren't even showing up uh, or couldn't even find the venue at one point, which was frustrating. But yeah, I, I rewrote the show and then I took it to uh, the Vancouver Fringe where uh, where it went a lot better and I, and I won the Artistic Risk Award, which was uh, just such a huge surprise and also just, um, yeah, I was incredibly grateful for for the fact that the, the the organization recognized the risk it took to yeah. <laughs> to uh, to do this show and tell the story, but also just like go through what I went through. So yeah, yeah that's was, amazing. Um, you say it's 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 more of an autobiographical story. Is it is there something specific that you focus on in it? Yeah. So the show is called Nathan Mosier is injured because when I was when I was like nineteen, I went to this this band called Us the Duo. Uh, with my sister and they, they got like famous on vine they did these um they did these six second covers and then they revealed their faces on good morning america and they were telling the story of how that happened through their music and i thought it was really cool how it, the show ended at the current moment like them on stage in their first nationwide tour and i was like that that's i want to do that show like what what's the story behind me uh becoming a you know, comedian and, and, and all this stuff. And, and I was like, well, if it, it would have to end on with me on stage in Edinburgh. So it'd have to be like a story of how I got to Edinburgh in a way. And so it made me do all this self-reflection. I, I wasn't doing a lot of personal material at the time. And so it made me start writing about, you know, like trauma and just, just like, why, why do I do this? Really asking like, you know, why? Cause it just was an obsession. Um, stand up. I had no idea, you know, it just hits you and then you can't stop. And so asking why um, led me to sort of self-examine. And then I went to uh, London to study abroad and then check out the French Festival. This was right after I graduated college, five, five, five years ago now. And I'm heading over to a gig in Chestnut, like an hour out from uh, London. And, uh, and I trip on a curb and I twist my ankle. And I was like, man, I'm always getting hurt. Like, you know, I've been getting hurt ever since like my first injury at 12. And I was like, man, I'm always getting hurt. Right. Ali Wong had just released a special where she's pregnant on stage. I was like, man, I'm going to be in crutches on stage, like <laughs> um, on my special. So, but then I realized I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's the thread, like injury. And then, uh, <laughs> then unfortunately right after that, then I wrote a huge breakdown uh, and, and sort of got out of it. And I actually like left, stopped performing, couldn't do it. But when I came back, I, I was like, I, I have the show. Like I have a, I have an hour now. Um, and I was like, that's, it's, it's about injury, like all forms of, of it. Because I realized that that's like what led me like through a <laughs> series of unfortunate events. I got, I was a, I was a pitcher and I, uh, and I hurt my arm and then, just just sort of I talk about it in the show, but how I feel like that's that was a sort of turning point for me because I, I kept getting hurt. You know, I, I, I went through puberty, started caring about girls, like less about academics because I was like winning, winning a lot of awards for, for like academic performance. And I was and I was a good pitcher. 
and then you know i i got in a relationship i got cheated on i you know which started started writing poetry that's so that's kind of like I, i've always written poetry but that's like really got me hooked to like starting writing poetry in my notebook and then i say and then the best and worst thing ever happened to me i got obsessed with stand-up comedy <laughs> and uh and at the time because i had gotten hurt so much i'd tell people i wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon um because I, I i knew i wanted to do some sort of like science oriented medical thing i don't know if that was like choice but also just i had the grades i you know you i, I don't know if you you kind of just reach for the stars with that and um and I did this work shadow program where, where the guy, where I got to sit one-on-one and basically quoting my show without the like added frills of jokes and stuff. But I, yeah, I had a one-on-one um, meeting with uh, Dr. Osborne, this guy who started this practice from scratch and he would do this work shadow program where you could shadow different surgeons. And he says, if there's anything you could picture yourself doing besides, um, besides, you know, doing surgery, um, do that. Because <laughs> he just basically is like, you know, giving a motivational type speech, but like, you know, this, this is life, you know, you have to have, this is really hard. And he explained how difficult it is and how much he had to overcome to, to get to where he is. And, uh, and at the time I had just been obsessively watching stand up. And so I was like, I guess I got to try stand up. And he also said, like, if you're, you have to be good at it too. Like you can't just suck at something and want to, <laughs> but it, so I was like, I got to find out if I'm good at this. And I, I was okay. Like I wasn't, I was bad, but I wasn't good. Like, you know, you're not supposed to be great when you first start, but, the, but I was, but I was hooked. And couldn't stop. And so, so that's kind of like the through line of the show. And I mean, I, I've found a lot of just threads, I guess, um, as I've done the show and, you know, you find, things that connect and callbacks and all these different things that you didn't even know, I guess, you know, looking at your own life, it, it really, it really forced me to connect the dots. And so the, the show evolved like tremendous. I mean, I, I don't know. It's probably like in its 37th draft or something. And now it's done. Like I'm, 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 I'm like, it's, it's done. But even in Vancouver, um, the, the judges when they were announcing the award they're like all five of us all five judges saw it. they were like we saw a different show <laughs> because he was working on it and that made them like it even more they were like wow he's like it's evolving in front of our eyes and uh and then the, the guy who like presented i think he was at the last show where it was like the final version <laughs> so he saw the final version it was like the best show the uh, it was the biggest audience they they laughed at every single joke but felt at all the emotional parts and so it was just like it made it made all the failure in edinburgh worth it <laughs> good <laughs> like you know okay this this wasn't like a waste of investment uh, especially considering how much money it cost you know so yeah it's it's i don't know i just said a lot of different things but um but that that yeah the, the, it's 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 um it's my life you know like it's I'd say by the end, it really became a sort of like testimony, if anything. And it was, it was definitely uh, like, um, oh, wow. Okay. I finally, I finally figured out the truest way to to express these things. Um, and, uh, and that original idea of like, I want to do a show that ends in the current moment of me on stage in Edinburgh. And I didn't realize to get to that story, I had to like, fail at edinburgh and it 
and 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 not like in my head i'm like oh it's gonna end on me a stage it's selling out getting great reviews all this stuff and it was like no it wasn't about that it was about the fact that you know i even though i've i've come out the other side of depression and and anxiety and and trauma like uh the the like it's the battle's not over you know like life is cyclical and i might be i might be better one of the guy, one of the technicians at at uh, the show uh, at, at Edinburgh, um, who was just great. His name's Chris, and he worked at the C venues. And he's been he he got to the National Theater at like age twenty six, and so he he was crying like after the show because he was like this this was my life, you know. I I got to the pinnacle, top of the mountain. I wasn't happy, and you know I, I you know I've never I'm not famous or anything, but like I sort of got to the point where like all the doors were opening for me, you know, like. My friend, my friend told me like her boyfriend at the time saw me. I was 21. And I was doing this show, and he was like, "Oh, that's your friend? Oh my god, that guy's gonna be like, super, you know, like get people telling you that, you know, and and like all the superstar, like just random people saying that, and then all the doors sort of open, and I didn't, I was afraid of them, you know. I was like, oh, I'm, I was afraid of the success, so I just ran away, and so. He said he always his dad will always say it is what it is, but he'll say it isn't what it was. Mm, and he's like, the only, the only. Yeah, yeah. I was like, and he's like, the only constant in life is change. And he described, you know, like the cyclical nature of life. But he was like, the way he sees it is like a spiral that's not only moving inward, but also up. Mm, mm-hmm. And then I said, oh, like a poop. Isn't that just a poop emoji? <laughs> and then he was like like oh my god that's that's true comedy that's one but, visual for it yeah like, <laughs> right yeah no just slowly going up and and so i i see it they're very much that way because i can't say that uh that i'm out of the clear with like you know struggling but i don't struggle as much mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> Good. So, so, yeah well i think it's really admirable that you've been able to create something beautiful out of your pain and that's that's the best you can hope for right um, so you mm-hmm. you mentioned that uh, it takes ten years to write an hour as a comedian. I find that very interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about your writing process and what does that actually look like? Are you scribbling notes of things that you see throughout the day, or are you someone who has you know their own little space that they go to to kind of dump everything out? I know you mentioned you did something like 37 iterations of your show just walk us through your writing process my process i would say is always changing currently but or you know i'm finding new things but i I can describe the writing process of Mm -hmm. this particular show that'd be great which is um oh when i was started feeling better so i started working with kids and that's a huge part of the show i started working at after school care and working with preschool kids and, and that's what i've been doing for the past few years out of college I realized that that as I sort of gotten into the career of being a comedian, that there's all this administrative work that sort of starts to bog you down and to the business of it. And so the, the actual creative part of it gets pushed to the side sometimes where, where when I first started, I, I was I set it a, a goal. I had to write every day for two hours and I wasn't doing that as much. And I, you start to like write on stage, which is not as great as writing i mean as a writer i i find it's much better to write with the pen and the pad at least that's what i love and i realize i I, george carlin said he's like he's a writer who likes who has to perform his stuff like to me the performance part of it is like just the final stage in editing 
because you need it you need to share it with the audience and to get that sort of in time feedback but i i love uh just sitting down and writing and so i was like i gotta get back to that so I, so when i stopped feeling depressed um and motivated again i would just drink a cup of coffee and go straight to a coffee shop and write for an hour and i was like i'm not gonna write jokes i'm just gonna write like i i organized my all everything i'd ever done or written into like a a giant google docs where it it was categorized by category and i would just press control you know and i could press control f if i need to find something you know but i i started by just going through that and sitting there for an hour and anything that wrote itself like i tried to write and it just kept flowing out uh spilling out like a hit a vein you know like that song lyric um if it did that then i kept going if it didn't i just and I did that for a while, and, and after a month, I started to get excited about the premises, so I started, so then I returned to the stage after, like, six months of not performing, and then, and then I, uh, I opened for Maria Bamford, and, like, and, and, like, got, like, some of the jokes in that, in that five-minute set are, like, still in the show to this day, and so that sort of, like, started the genesis of it, and I just kept adding and taking away, and, eventually had like a sort of raw like two hours worth of stuff to sift through so then once i got to that point mike rabiglia will will uh he'll just invite people over and to read a script or something that he's working on and he says he always buys a pizza because like who doesn't love pizza so i was like all right i'll just do that and so i invited all my friends and i think the first one i did was on my birthday I invited all my friends. I created like a, a questionnaire, like a targeted feedback form because I had, I had a, what I did was I used the, the save the cat. I've never actually read the book, save the cat, but I was like, I want this to feel like a movie. So I took that and I found an outline and I inputted my jokes, like, or my, my material, the stuff I had like into that. And, uh, and I noticed the gaps. Like, I was like, oh, so there's no, what is the fun and games, you know, of my story? And I was like, oh, it's this. And I, like, I looked through the stuff I've been wanting to write about and was like, I don't have any jokes about that. So I was like, so I have to write material. I, I just have to write the story. And, and it was, was what was interesting. That was the first time, like, the jokes sort of flowed out of the story rather than me just looking for the funny. And that was really cool. Another challenge was like I had to I have uh, material about getting fifty one fifty arrested, you know, and and I was trying to write jokes about that, and and they all felt inauthentic, and I realized I have to like the only way for me to authentically write jokes about this is I have to communicate the feeling, because what I wanted was I was I was like, it, how can you understand something like this if you've never had it? And I was like, well, then that means I have to act and actually live the trauma on stage in front of you, you know, and, and, but in the writing phase, I had to basically close my eyes and feel that emotion and remember it and then write the truth of that. And then the, let the jokes sort of bubble up to the top. And I got, you know, the, then the jokes did flow out of that and it was authentic because the setup communicated the feeling and the joke was the relief rather than just trying to provide relief. And so it was a lot of that, like, it was a lot of like, you know, trying to, and when I write music, which was, so the, the way the music thing happened was, um, I had started writing covers and stuff and like working, I, I've always played piano 
and I started to learn how to like sing and play at the same time. And but it was kind of like, you know, in the background. And then I had this one poem that I wrote and it, uh, I wanted to put it in the show because, uh, because as I started to see like other people break the form, I was like, what? I had this vision of like, oh, it'd be so cool if, you know, there was poetry in the show and, you know, music and, and all these different things because, um, and, and in my head, I was like, I'll have other poets feature on the, show. like, it would be like one man show, but other poets write the po- but as I started performing, I was like, oh, yeah, I have to learn how to, like, I have to become a spoken word poet, too, because that's, you know, because I'm, and I, and I did it, and I was like, people were like, you're really good at this. Um, and I was like, yeah, I mean, poetry is actually the first thing I ever wrote. Like, comedy's kind of, you know, I abandoned poetry because I was like, you can't make money as a poet. I thought you had to be just like a professor or something. So I was like, oh, I can't be a poet. Then I went to the, the poetry lounge, and I'm like, wait, you guys, like, do this? And it, and it, people, and anyways. So I was doing this poem that I wrote. It was inspired by a song called uh, No One Knows Me Like the Piano in My Mother's Home by Sampha. But it's called No One Knows Me Like the Notebook in My Mother's Home. And so I recorded it with my my dad's best friend. He's a he's a sound engineer, a composer, and just like he, he's my godfather, technically, I think. Or he's he's my sister's godfather. For some reason, we have two different godfathers. But I recorded me playing the piano and then doing the poem over it. And then there's, and then I, and then in the, in the verse breaks, I, I sing the, the chorus. So I was like, okay, I'll do that as part of the show. And I did it. And one guy came to one of the workshops, this poet, and he said, my only feedback to you is that you should sing more. And I had been trying to write songs and never finishing them. And so I was like, all right, uh, I should try and write a song. And then that Monday, like he told me that it was a Saturday night. And that Monday, I wrote a song on the spot. And it was like the first song I ever finished. And it's the first song in the in the show. So, yeah, that was sort of the genesis of like me becoming a songwriter. And so I started working with my uncle. And he's like, well, if you're going to if you're going to, you know, have music in the show and you're going to go to Edinburgh, you should record an EP so that you have something to like, you know, if you want to listen to it later. Uh, and then he sends me this long email and he's like, I want to do it for free. He, he has cancer. He's at a place where he can just afford to, you know, do passion projects with people and then, you know, have paid projects. He's like, I'm going to produce it for free. So yeah, we got to work on a, on an EP and then the pandemic happened and the, sh- the Edinburgh didn't happen, but I got to do, I got to finish the EP. So I, I, that's, that's how I became into music and then once i wrote that first song it was like the floodgates opened because i already knew theory and piano i knew like i took 10 years of classical training i took exams i knew all this stuff i just didn't know how to apply it and then once i figured it out it's like all oh, music i started learning to produce on garage garage band and logic and so then yeah just music became a huge thing and that sort of became like a focus and i stopped performing stand-up as much as I started to have the backbones of the show, I was like, oh, I don't really need to like go out and workshop this stuff at open mics or shows. Like I can just do it as an hour and workshop it that way. <laughs> yeah. And then I just started doing sets where I was like, I'm just going to do everything in that set and I'm going to weave my jokes into a narrative with the music and the poetry and put them in an order that it's telling a story. 
and it was going well. I was like, wait, I can just be really emotional and sad or somber or passionate with my music or, you know, this with the poetry and then immediately go back into the jokes. And then like, no one is like, this is uncomfortable. They're like, that was better than just jokes, <laughs> you know? That's great. Yeah. Now I'm, now I'm like in this weird place where I'm like, or I not even in this weird place anymore. I'm just accepting it that like after Edinburgh, I was like, oh, I don't, I'm not just a comedian anymore. And, and like, I don't actually really enjoy just being up there with the jokes and no, and no vulnerability, like just trying to make people laugh. But it feels really, it feels like I'm high. Like it feels the least vulnerable of the art form, art forms that I can do. And not to say that comedians can't be vulnerable. I think they can be, but I do notice that the, the great ones are vulnerable, but like, it's really hard to get there. Whereas with poetry, it's like, if you're not vulnerable right away, then there's zero point. And, and I think also that does come from the fact that like most poets don't make money. So <laughs> like no one's doing it for the money. They're literally doing it just to get this off their chest and comedy. I unfortunately, I think is like so saturated and so commercial and so commodified that it does become like, it, it can just become like a skill, you know, uh, or a trade, you know, like there's a, and then they, they call it a craft and, and I agree, like, it's not, it's not bad to have it craft. There's a craft to these things, but, um, so I, I don't know where that's going to lead in terms of like me finding that I know I'm not going to just do comedy anymore. I'm going to do all these things. Like where, where, do, where does the com like, where does the stand up lie in the sort of grand scheme of things? And I'm like, for me, it's like just a, another tool of like expression, but it's not, it can't be the, the end all be all. And also I'm not. I had one, I remember like the the craziest, I was like in, deep in my depression and I did this show in Ventura and this guy comes up to me and he's like, how old are you? I'm like 22. He's like, holy shit. I watch a lot of comedy. No, like, I watch a lot of comedy. You're the funniest person I've ever seen. And when I said I was 20, when I said I was 22, he's like, you're going to be a fucking superstar. And Yes, people. Yes, people say that to me, and it's like, okay, I am funny, but I watch someone like Dave Chappelle, and I'm like, what I bring to the table is not not that. Like, like I'm not as raw funny as he is. I'm thoughtful. You know what I mean? Like, I can bring wisdom and thoughtfulness and authenticity, and and I know that Dave Chappelle also brings that too. But like, he finds like when he talks about comedy, he's like, he thinks that he can express everything just through a person on stage with a microphone and i feel like i also need a piano i also need poetry like i need i need a lot of different things to get the message across and not to say that one day i won't be able to just like just me and a microphone say everything i want to say but 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 i found that that when i have a piano there too i want to have a notebook you know like i i can I can do the whole, like, I can do everything I want to do and I don't have to, like, leave anything unsaid. <laughs> I love that. And now a note from our sponsor. The Theater Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by ClearCom. ClearCom is the leader in voice communications for theater and the performing arts. Call your cues with the simplicity and elegance of ClearCom Intercom Solutions. 
You can find them at C-L-E-A-R-C-O-M.com. Go check them out. It sounds to me like you being a storyteller first is probably what's making you so successful. I'm curious about your process for testing out material. You mentioned a little bit earlier about kind of surveying your friends. I'm curious about how the iterations of your show come about. Who are you asking? Like what kind of pool is it that you're surveying and and how do you actually do that? And and how do you how do you choose also what to actually move forward with knowing that it's such a subjective thing. Oh, yeah. Well, the feedback forms that I would create were super targeted because I find when you just ask someone regular general feedback, like, what did you think? They, first off, don't want to tell you because they don't want to hurt your feelings or they want to say only the things to hurt your feelings because they think like you want me to be brutal. Like they go to the extremes and then they, but it's never targeted. It's always vague. You know what I mean? Like, um, like, what do you think? Oh, it was good. How, you know what I mean? Like, like, and then they go, oh, I'm not qualified to do that. I'm not a comedian. And I'm, and what's funny about like people giving feedback is I actually read this book. Um, and in the book, I can't remember which book it was like, um, but it talked about expertise and it said that, you know, someone goes, a food critic goes to a place and they eat something. And they can tell you all the reasons why it was good and all the reasons why it was bad. And they can use all this terminology and go as specific in depth, right? They have the same taste buds as you do. Like, so if they eat something from McDonald's and you eat something from McDonald's, you know, and then you guys eat something from a gourmet five-star restaurant and they eat something like both of you are going to have be like McDonald's was good, but not as good as this. But if you ask a non-expert or a non-person who's practicing that, why? They'll just go, I don't know. It just wasn't as good. <laughs> but if you ask that food critic, they'll explain. And so when you really get like someone to explain themselves and give them targeted, you know, feedback, they can they can get to that point. Like um like I remember I showed my friend I showed my friend this comedian uh and uh Mitch Hedberg, who I love, and like he's a one liner guy. My friend didn't like it at first and then all of a sudden he started to get it and he liked it. And I took him to the show and we went to the show and it was a one liner guy. And he was like, ah, one-liners aren't my thing. And I was like, that's not true. You liked Mitch Hedberg. But as an expert, like as someone who spent, you know, tons of hours analyzing comedy, I knew exactly what was off about the hour. I was like, he, he was, he, every time he grabbed the, the cup, it's because he didn't remember the next joke and I could see him thinking. So there, so there's a lack of fluidity. So the one-liners didn't cascade into the other one, creating a buildup of things so he never got to the point where the jokes were fully hitting and the rhythm was off and i was like i could see all these things and i was like that's what was wrong with it but i can understand that so so my feedback was was super targeted a lot of it had to do with the the save the cat format you know so it's like i would say like here's where the dark night of the soul is supposed to be do you feel like you know that adequately conveyed that what i i i have the document somewhere but it was like it's very targeted so that they can, and then, and then the, the taking the feedback is, yeah, it's, I mean, after that, it's, I don't know, it's very, like, it was, it didn't feel like uncomfortable because like, it's more targeted, you know what I mean? Versus someone just saying like, I didn't like it. And then you go, why? And then they don't know. And then you just feel that. But if they say I didn't like it, because at this moment, uh, you, you, uh, you, 
I mean, sometimes people like uh, your music performance and like literally after a show on Monday that I did, like someone's like, oh, I just couldn't understand the words at this part. Like if they just said I didn't like the song, then you might be like the song's bad. But they're like, no, I couldn't understand the words. And you're like, oh, so the words aren't bad. The content's not bad. I just need to speak clearly into the microphone. It's like easy fix, you know? So that that's that's how I look for feedback. It's like it's very targeted and I'm asking for what I'm looking for and what I need. And, and then the biggest, the, the hardest part is um, taking that in and then, and then like cutting stuff. The, the hardest part was, was cutting things. You know, I got a review in Edinburgh that was like, hit me really hard, but like everybody else read it well. And I didn't read it well, but actually it ended up being helpful. <laughs> like it made the show better, but what it forced me to do was like cut, all the material, the jokes that were like uh, not servicing the story. And I had been told by someone who's from a clowning background and has had success in Edinburgh. He saw my show and he said, you know, you, the best parts of your show are when you're vulnerable, when you're not funny, but your funny has to be so ridiculously funny that you warrant that. And he's like, I personally need jokes, you know, last every 12 seconds and this. And so I thought, okay, like I need to pack jokes in. But what that forced me to do was just pack punchlines where there was no reason to have it just throwing in misdirections because i thought i needed that took out all that stuff and then i did it in vancouver and i thought it was so funny because then a girl came up to me and she was like you your show was the funniest thing i've seen here and i was like i took out the jokes and it made it funnier because the jokes that were there just were warranted you know and so um yeah, I don't know. I'm still figuring out like solicited feedback I can handle, but unsolicited one, it's like I'm you know, I was I was like, oh, I shouldn't read reviews because, you know, I've heard a lot of writers they go, I don't read reviews. But then I also look up to Kobe and Kobe Kobe in an interview when he was like eighteen, he said they they asked him like, What do you what do you say to people who give you unsolicited feedback where they're like you need to work on your jump shot if you want to make the nba or you shouldn't go to call you should go to college first then go to the nba you shouldn't enter straight out of high school and he said i just whatever they tell me i do it and then i come back to them and say i did what you told me check it out what do you think i thought that was really interesting because if, because if you take that approach they still might be wrong but now they know they're wrong because you go, I did exactly what you told me and it didn't work. But if it does work, then it just works. And you go, thank you. So that's that's something I'm learning where it's like, I have to actually, if someone gives me feedback, first I have to go, am I willing to try this? If I'm not willing to try it, then I can just be like, whatever you told me, I, it's, it's not serviceable. I can't use it. <laughs> but if I'm willing to try it, if it's something I can do, like I should just do it. And then. Yeah, if it didn't work, I'd be like, hey, your feedback was incorrect. Um, they'll be like, all right, whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That seems like a good philosophy to me, especially as you're kind of building out material. Speaking of which, what exactly are you thinking is coming next? Are you going to continue working on your show? Is there something new in the pipeline? Is there some place you'd love to be or something you'd love to be doing? So with the show, uh, I want to do, uh, I'm, I found a local venue that I'm going to do it. I want to do it regularly in LA and sort of have like a home base. 
because the larger goal of the show, which I've always wanted to do, is do the show, but then also have mental health organizations present so that after the show, if someone's feeling vulnerable and wants to talk about it, they're not just talking to me after the show. And then I'm like, see you later. And then they have to just, they have no, there's no follow up because people would cry. Like, you know, someone told me, she was like, I wish my brother could be here. And I was like, where's your brother? And she's like, he, he committed suicide. And it's like, I don't, I want the people who need the show to be there. And if it makes them feel hope that there's a path, you know, like a continuation of that rather than something I talked about with my uncle, where it's like, I'm not necessarily the person to provide that next step. Um, not because I don't want to, I might just not have the resources. And he talked about how like in church, for example, like, you know, you might hear a sermon and then afterwards the, the church is like, okay, go to this small group or get plugged in with this community. Like they're, they're always like, like, here's the, here's what you do after this, apply this in your life. So, um, so that's what I want to do. And so, um, once I, once I get the venue, uh, I'm going to hit up all these mental health organizations and, uh, figure out exactly how I want to structure it. I'm not entirely sure, but I want to do that locally and serve as a pilot run because eventually the goal would be to take, then take that to different cities, take it to colleges, high schools, maybe even, and do the show and then have, have the work. So that's, that's sort of like the media. And then also actually, because I want an award in the Vancouver fringe. I'm eligible for this $3,000 touring bursary at the Brighton Fringe. And I wanted to do it like, I was like, man, this is a lot of work to apply to this thing. Can I do it next year? Because I'm eligible. And they're like, no, you actually can only, like, it's, if you want this award, you can do it for the next year. So, um, so I have to do that by January 6th, and, which means I have to like revamp my website, like try and actually build like a sort of like press pack and touring, you know, because so, I got back and I got, I was burnt out like and super tired. Um, and then I knew I was going to get depressed <laughs> because of, of all that sort of buildup. And then sort of like, it's, it's been tough. I quit my job as a preschool teacher. And so I have to, and I was like, oh, should I go back to that? But I was also like, I think I need something more flexible, pays more long-term. And so in my immediate future is I'm, I want to build up a sort of business in that respect of tutoring, but like all different subjects, I'd like to do piano lessons. I'm obsessed with chess, teaching chess, you know, like I, I just, I'm like, okay. So I want to, I'm building a website called Nathan Mosier is here to help.com. And, and it'll just be like, here's all the things I do. And if I'm getting really idealistic about it, it'll eventually be sliding scale, like pay what you want. But that's, that's if I can have enough consistent income like on other things that i can get to that but um yeah and then i have another show idea that i have the backbone of but what i've seen with this show where it, you know it took me 10 years to to have the material and then four years of the actual writing process and that just how many iterations i'm like yeah th this thing is like a a seed you know and i just gotta like i just gotta water it a little bit every day or every so often um so that it continues to grow and then it'll as it stuff percolates it'll hit that sort of like growth spurt um that i've seen happen like i ha the backbone of this one man show was this children's book idea i had for like a long time 
And it took me months just thinking about it. And then all of a sudden I wrote it like the first draft of it, like in two days. So I, I understand that that's sometimes how it works, where it's like you keep working on the idea. And then all of a sudden you're like, how did I, I've been thinking about this for you know months and being like, why am I not writing? Why am I not writing it? Why am I? And then all of a sudden it happens. So I know that working on new music, uh, working on just, just always writing stuff, playing a whole lot of chess. Cause I, I got super obsessed with it. And so it's kind of like, uh, I play tournaments now and stuff. So like, that's been a big thing. Yeah. Just, just figuring out like I need to become financially independent. So that, that's more, that's like more important. I mean, I, my art's very important, but I'm like, I can't <laughs> do anything well, unless you I can't make art if you can't eat. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, yes. so that's, that's really what's next for me is just like, I'm at a coffee shop right now um i'm moving potentially so it's like there's a lot of change happening yeah well it sounds like you have a lot of good going for you and you're working on a lot of things so that's very exciting i love the idea of having mental health resources available to your audiences i think that's really admirable i hope that works out for you so nathaniel we end every podcast uh, with the same two questions that i'm going to ask you now uh, number one is what is your favorite thing about your job or the industry as a whole? Actually, I went to an open mic last night and I, I like went up with no material, which I have only done once ever, but I was like, I don't want to do jokes. But my friend from uh, Seattle who I met over the pandemic um, wants to do stand up. And so I was like, let's go. Just, and so he did it for his first time. And there was a lot of people that were really bad <laughs> and there was a lot of people that were good and and i and i was like man i remember how like awful this is but like there's beauty in the attempt yeah. <laughs> like i don't know there's something like like even when art is bad it's good like if does that make sense yes it um does. Yeah. Uh, yeah 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 like so that was, I don't know, that was something that was different last night. I was like, I still enjoy that, that person bombing because I'm like, you're trying, you know, or like, like you're, you, you're trying to get out of your situation in life through the, through this, you might not be doing a great job. You might have a lot of unresolved trauma that, you know, you're putting out on stage that you should probably be talking about with a therapist. But your intention is you're just trying to feel better. And I think like there's something beautiful about that, you know? There's um, beauty in the Knowing attempt. that I, mm. I, I'm, I definitely am not the first person to say that though. I, I'm plagiarized that or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that's like, you know, because people like they say the, <laughs> I went bungee jumping and like I was really scared. And so I, I didn't do it. I chickened out. But part of the reasoning, the mental reasoning why I chickened out was because I, because people were saying that they're more afraid of doing comedy than bungee jumping off a cliff. And I was like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and I was like, you know what? I don't need to jump off this cliff because you, I want to keep that. Like <laughs> you're telling me I, this is my thing that you're, or you're afraid of. Like, I don't need to do everything I'm afraid of, you know? Like, 
you know, like <laughs> my friends, like do, do the things that scare you, but also don't jump in front of a bus. Like, you know, like, you know, if you have something that scares you, that makes you feel alive, like you don't need to constantly do everything that's going to put you in danger. Like you just need that one thing that pushes the boundaries of, of your life and existence. And, you know, eventually I'll build, work my way back up to do, you know, doing things that scare me both physically and this, and, and there's all those levels of like breaking through, you know, the barriers of life. But yeah, it's just crazy. The fact that like doing this job, people are more afraid of, like they're more afraid of getting on stage and talking about their feelings in a microphone than jumping out of a plane. Like that's crazy to me. So there's certainly beauty in the attempt because like to other people, to me, it's no big deal. I've been public speaking my whole life. The first time I did it, I was super nervous doing stand up, but that sort of like, I don't know, you just like getting on stage and talking about stuff is easier sometimes than talking about it with no stage. And I think that's because like there's, there's structure and there's, you know, like you curate, you get to curate how you talk about it and you can manipulate it. But when you're just talking in real life, like you have no control, you know? And so, and so I just, I just think it's, it's crazy that that's like, people are more afraid to do this than to jump out of a plane. Well, you know? maybe better you than the rest of us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Somebody, and, and somebody, somebody has to do it. Yes. Like it's true is what I realized. Like, like <laughs> somebody has to, and it's, and you don't do this because it, the true people who, who do it, they realize that it's because they, they have to do it mm, because mm-hmm. not only, yeah, it becomes a service and people, and my friend, he goes, if you stop writing poetry, I'm going to stop being your friend. Uh, <laughs> he's like, as your friend, I need your poetry. And so if it's just for me, you have to do it. So if you're like, I'm sad, I'm and was like, I'm going to show up to your house and I'm going to grab you. And I'm going to be like, you do this. And so, you know, eventually it's like, it's like, if you're not going to do it, no one else will. <laughs> yeah. Good point. <laughs> if you yeah. could change one thing about your job or the industry as a whole, what would it be? Yeah, I would change it. The fact that it's an industry, I guess, like, or that word, you know, like it, it, it's a commodity. It's a, like me and my friend talked about it. He like in the UK, you know, there's so many grants for art and in the U S it's like, I looked for grants to like do my show and stuff. And it's like, you have to live in San Francisco. It's like San Francisco loves art, but the U S doesn't, you know? And I know we're all these, we're, we're all sorts of different States and stuff, but yeah, we're, this country is, we'd rather have entertainment than art. And I think art confronts and entertainment escapes. And I think they can be the one and the same. You can have something that confronts and gives you an escape and relief, but you cannot get the relief until you confront it. And, and I think a lot of our, our entertainment here is just like focused on that. And it, it sells like, um, you know, sugar, sugar sells, you know, but it's not actually good for you, (laughs) you know? And so that I would change, I would change that. But also I, I think that's a larger problem. Like with, economic society capitalism you know um that can't necessarily be like immediately fixed but 
but that, that that's what I would, I don't yes. know how to change that. I just acknowledge that it's an issue. And I think it will eventually just change on its own. Like everything does when it ceases to make money or ceases to work or, you know, harms the people who are in charge. I agree that we could definitely use some more arts funding. <laughs> well, thank you so much yeah. for joining us today, Nathaniel. This was a really great conversation. I'm so glad we got to hear some of your story. And where can we find you? Where where can we hear your stories or watch your shows? I feel like I feel like right now you can find me at a coffee shop or at my house just because I <laughs> currently I'm currently trying to rebuild everything you know like my website i haven't updated in a long time i i'm not on social media but i want to make more stuff on patreon uh and so you know my website is nathanmosiersgoodenough.com that is probably going to be the best way to find me um because when i do update it when i do do the things it's all going to go on there uh eventually i'm going to build a website for the show but like that that will be like home base like Great. That's the goal. It's like home base, Nathan Mosier is good enough.com. Awesome. So that website exists. It's not updated, <laughs> but that's where you will find me. Yeah. Well, we will keep an eye out for Nathan Mosher. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Theater at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only 38 US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.